Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, would you turn with me in the Bible quickly? This is not the verse we're going to focus on, but uh, the book of Luke, chapter 24, and we'll read verses 25 to 27 quickly. Uh, if you don't feel like going there, it doesn't matter. You can just listen to me because I'll read them. Uh, and then we're going to head somewhere else in the Bible together today. But uh, this is an account where uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. <clears throat> And he appears to two people walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And uh, these two travelers were doubting the rumors of the resurrection which had reached their ears. They were confused. They didn't really understand what was going on. And Jesus draws alongside them and he's walking down the road and they have a, a conversation. And as their doubts of the resurrection surface, Jesus says the following to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Hope that does not describe me in my life. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, <clears throat> he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, Jesus often made comments like this. Uh, he, he said at, at one stage, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill that book that you read in the synagogue every week. I came to fulfill it. Uh, at one point he said to the Pharisees, uh, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. That whole book is about me. Those are insane statements for a man to make. Any man except Jesus, because for Jesus they were true. There is a crimson line, a single theme, like a blood-stained thread that runs... From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. A single blood-stained theme. And it is the theme of the redemption of man. And the precious blood that it cost God. That had to be shed in order to redeem man. The word redemption, of course, <clears throat> means... Uh, the, the payment that has to be made in order to regain possession of that which was lost. And so the theme of the Bible is God's paying the ultimate price, the death of his own son, in order to regain possession of that which was lost, people. Lost in their sin, as was told to us this morning. Understanding this theme of the Bible unlocks the Bible. You, you, you cannot understand the Bible unless you understand that theme. And if, if that theme of sin and redemption is the theme of the whole Bible, then, of course, it goes without saying you can't understand the Bible, but you can't understand God if you don't understand that theme. And not only can't you understand God, but you can't understand mankind if you don't understand that theme, which means you can't understand yourself. 
I was mountain biking earlier this week with a, a, a friend of mine who's just returned after seven years in London. And uh, we were friends at school, and we kind of got saved at the same time. Uh, I got born again when I was 23 years old, and uh, I witnessed to my mates, and he was the only friend that I had that followed and got saved. All the rest kind of rejected the, the uh, evangelistic zeal that I was exhibiting when I got saved. I was a bit sort of reckless. And um, this friend of mine, Neil, on the other hand, he, you know, just different personality type, I guess, and he managed to stay in contact with all of our old friends and maintain those friendships, which is a wonderful and commendable thing. And uh, we were going for a ride, and I said to him, have you had a chance, you know, over these last years at all to witness to any of our old friends? And he said to me that uh, a number of times, in fact, uh, several of them have begun speaking to him about God after a few beers. <clears throat> and I'm sure you've seen that uh, phenomenon yourself, that uh, drunkenness seems to draw out the religious views of people. Uh, particularly when they're speaking to someone who they know is religious, you know. And he said that to a man with a single voice, all of them hold the same opinion. They think that um, all religions lead to the same God. And that if you live a good enough life, you'll go to heaven. Now, I used to believe that. But you see, those two things, they betray a total ignorance in my old friends and in whoever believes that worldview. They betray a total ignorance of this central theme of the entire Bible. Because if you believe that all religions lead to the same God. That's their worldview of God. Then they don't understand the God of the Bible. And if they think you can live a good enough life and get into heaven, then they don't understand what the Bible has to say about the total depravity of man. You see, this theme unlocks understanding in life. Uh... The Bible says that there is a God. He's not just any God. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he has revealed himself to us. Not only is he a God, but he is a righteous and holy God. And he does not pass over transgressions. He punishes the wicked because he is a just God. Would you want to serve any other kind of God? Would you want to serve an unjust God? No, sir, I want to serve a just God. But the Bible also says that man is totally depraved. He is dead in his transgressions and sins. He is a slave of sin, the Bible says. Totally enslaved to sin. He is an enemy of God. He is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides upon him, the Bible says. It remains upon him. He is unable to please God in any way, in any way. So the moral and ethical acts of unbelievers do not please God in any way. 
Because the natural mind cannot receive the things of God. Uh, man is in desperate need of a savior. That's the bottom line. And yet, it's hard to hear, but we, mankind, we are so depraved that before the light of Christ bursts into our life, we are unable to even seek salvation. We don't even search for God. God has to come and break into your life with amazing grace. There is none who seeks God, the Bible says. Man is totally depraved. He is evil. That's the testimony of the Bible. And this being the state of man, God in his great mercy sent his only son into the world to pay the ultimate price. And he took upon himself the punishment for the sins of his people. And he died for his people. And God sovereignly, successfully saves those whom he visits. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end. And that's why when you have been saved, your heart rises up within you in a song of gratitude and thanksgiving that says, no matter what comes in my life, I will worship the Lord. That's, that's why Alan and Colleen can lose their son and they can be in church raising their hands, worshiping a God that they know is faithful. Amazing grace. And so we can't understand God if we don't understand the Bible, this theme of the Bible, and we can't understand ourselves, which means you can't understand your spouse, you can't understand your children. All of these things, how you treat people, how you discipline kids, all of this is informed by the theme of redemption in the Bible. All of this. But when we do see this, Jesus Christ takes his rightful place in our hearts. And when you read the Bible, the Old Testament, when you read it, it takes new life. When you see this blood-stained thread, this crimson line, as I call it, passing through the scriptures. And finally, and perhaps more to the point of what I want to share with you this morning. Without seeing this crimson line. Without seeing Jesus Christ. Through the pages of the Old Testament. Running into the New Testament. Without seeing that. The Old and New Testaments disconnect from each other. And the cause of Christ is irreparably damaged. When the Old and New Testaments disconnect. When we don't see the Bible as a single story with a single theme. With God irresistibly, sovereignly working out his plan from the fall of Adam in the garden to the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. It's a single story of God coming and saving us. It's an incredible story. There was a theologian... In the early 20th century, this is over a hundred years ago, he said this. His name was James Orr. And I read you a quote from him. From Genesis to Revelation, we feel that this book is in a real sense 
a unity. It's not a collection of fragments, but has, as we say, an organic character. It has one connected story to tell from beginning to end. We see something growing before our eyes as we read it. There is plan, there is purpose, progress, and the end folds back on the beginning. And when the whole is finished, we feel that here again, as in the primal creation, God has finished all his works, and behold, they are very good. That's how he felt when he finished reading the Bible. Also important is that this single story of the Bible is an historical story. It's not a parable. It's not a collection of metaphors or dreams or analogies or fables. No. The Bible chronicles historical events from the creation of the world through to the winding up of this creation and the beginning of the new. It is an historical document. But unlike other historical works and books of history, this book tells us history in a way in which it reveals to us the very real blood of Jesus, the theme of redemption running through the events of history. So it's not only that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament through types and shadows which are important, but we also see him in the real historical events of the world itself. God reveals himself to be sovereign in history through the Bible. So the Bible gives fresh meaning and understanding to all that has gone before us. You know, the Christian is in a far better position to interpret human history, any history, than is the unbeliever. Because he sees it with the perspective of redemption. And not only can we see the past more accurately, but... Because of this theme of the Bible, we can understand ourselves and our place in the present. Who am I? Does life have meaning? What is the meaning of life? Do I have value? Where did I come from? You know, the great questions of life, they find their answers in seeing the crimson line. Of the blood of Christ running through the pages of the Bible. That's where you will find the answers that trouble you in your deepest part. So the Bible helps us make sense of the past. It helps us understand ourselves in the present. And lastly, the theme of the Bible, this redemptive theme, also helps us to ensure our place in the future. Even beyond death, into eternity. See, folks, that's why there is no other book like the Bible. There has never been a book like the Bible, and there will never be a book like the Bible. Because it was written by God himself with a very purpose of giving us light. Light that we may see by. Light 
that helps us understand and make the right decisions, choose the right paths in life. I remember when I first received Christ, I was introduced to the concept of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And clearly I'd been ignorant of the fact that that there were such prophecies because I remember being totally amazed that hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was born, the prophets, the Jewish prophets were prophesying with incredible accuracy the details of his birth and of his life and of his death and of his resurrection. And I was amazed that I could take the Bible that had always sat on my bookshelf in my bedroom, I could actually go to it, and if I just knew where to look, I could go and read those prophecies. And as I began to be shown these prophecies, I believe that that, uh, seeing Christ in the Old Testament is a key part of discipleship. See, I believe in the power of truth. I believe in the power of theology. That it's not some dry academic pursuit. That it has the power to strengthen us and to change us. I mean, why else has God given us this book? It has power to strengthen us. And when I began to see these prophecies and I began to be shown them and I began to read them and and then see how they were fulfilled in the New Testament, that process alone had an incredibly pastoral effect on me. Bible study and Bible teaching must always be a central part of the life of any church. It is the heart of discipleship. I fear that there's a temptation to move into more social pursuits in the in attempt to disciple younger people, etc. Let the Bible always be the center of it. In the book of Isaiah, for example, chapter 7, Isaiah prophesied. This was 740 years before Christ was born. He prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. A couple of thousand years before that, Genesis chapter 49, it was prophesied that the ruler of Israel would be born into the tribe of Judah. Of course, we know Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Uh, The prophet Micah, chapter 5, he said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a tiny little insignificant town. Hosea, the prophet, he said that the Messiah would spend time in Egypt and then God would call his son back out of Egypt into Israel. We know that happened because of the persecution of Herod in the times of Jesus. Jeremiah, the prophet, he prophesied that at the time of the birth of the Messiah, that the birth of the Messiah would cause the death of many of the children in Israel, particularly from the tribes of Benjamin and uh, Joseph, Rachel weeping for her children, Uh, Isaiah again, and Malachi, the prophet, they prophesied that before Jesus came onto the scene, before the Messiah would come, there would be a messenger sent before him. To prepare the way. That he would be a voice crying in the wilderness. And we know that was fulfilled by John the Baptist who was preaching out in the desert. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
the most staggering prophecy in Daniel, that the Messiah would die 483 years after the command to restore the temple. So 150 years after that prophecy, uh, Artaxerxes, the king of Media, he gave Nehemiah an instruction to restore the temple. 483 years later, guess what happened? Jesus Christ died on a cross. Phenomenal. This book is incredible, man. This book can tell the future. Isaiah 53, if you've never read it, the most incredible prophecy of the death of the Messiah, of how he would bear the iniquities of his people upon himself. And that still speaks to you today, sir. That your sin was taken by the, by the Messiah. Prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. Incidentally, that's why Jesus said to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Basically, he was saying to them, Listen, if you guys knew your Bible, you would know it was necessary for the, for the Messiah to suffer. Zechariah, his body would be pierced. David, in the Psalms, his hands would be pierced. Go and read Psalm 22. Phenomenal prophecy. He would thirst. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 16, David says, the body of the Messiah would not suffer corruption in the ground. He would be raised from the dead physically. All this prophesied. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. And then I learned that not only is the Old Testament full of direct prophecies of Christ like these, but also that the Bible is rich in types and shadows of the Messiah and of the gospel itself. The entire sacrificial system of Israel was a type, a shadow of the sacrificing of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to wash away the sins of the world. And I want to spend uh, the sort of 15 minutes that we've got left just looking at one particular type of the gospel in the Old Testament. And we'll see this in the life of a man named Noah. And in Noah, uh, the Bible clearly says that Noah's faith is a type of saving faith in the gospel. So Noah's faith is given to us as an example of what saving faith in Christ is supposed to look like. Noah was born uh, nine generations after Adam and Eve. And in his day, in his generation, the Bible says that the world was filled with violence and bloodshed. We, human beings like you and me, left without the law and a legal system to keep us in check, or the Spirit of God within us to change our hearts, which is what the new covenant brings. Without these things, we as human beings turned the earth into a bloodbath. Let us never doubt what we are capable of in our natural state. 
The history of the world before the flood of Noah is God's lesson to us about the depravity of our hearts. The Bible says of that time that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God told Noah, the only righteous man, the only regenerate man of his day, he told him to build an ark and he told him to take two of every animal onto the ark. You know the story. God sent a flood and he destroyed the entire earth. He killed every man, woman, child, animal, everything that walked on the earth. He killed. He wiped the earth clean of the filth of this race of people called human beings. And he started again. God let man have his run of the earth. He let man have his run until God could no longer bear it. This is who we are. Don't have high thoughts and opinions of yourself or your children. This is who we are. This is why salvation in Christ is such a miracle. That's why grace is so amazing. So the question begs that, can we see the crimson line through the story of Noah? Can we see Jesus Christ in this story and the gospel? And we can confidently answer yes to that question because the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says that Noah's faith is a type of saving faith in the gospel. I'm going to read that verse to you. This is Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, Moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That's a very short verse, and yet it compares Noah's faith and saving faith in Christ, in the gospel, it compares those two things in at least five different ways. And as we close, we're going to quickly look at these five comparisons of Noah's faith to saving faith in the gospel. First, Noah was, and I quote, divinely warned of things not yet seen. Noah had never seen a flood before. In fact, some scientists say that until that point in history, it had never rained before. So Noah had never even seen rain before. There was a mist that used to go up and water the earth. But God said to Noah, water is going to start falling out of the sky. And in fact, it's going to keep falling, Noah, until the entire earth is covered in a flood. And I'm going to kill every living creature on the earth. And guess what? Noah believed him. Do you believe God? You see, in the same way as Noah has been divinely warned of things not yet seen, we have been divinely warned of things not yet seen. 
The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that there is a judgment coming. That God will one day raise all the dead to life. They will stand before him, the good and the evil, and that all will give an account to Jesus on that day for how we've lived. The Bible also says that as the world was destroyed with water at that point, that God will again destroy the earth, this time in fire. And God would roll up the whole of this creation as he rolls up a scroll, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. Folks, none of us have ever seen anything like that. Those are things not yet seen. But we've been divinely warned of them. You know, I think that day, the day of judgment, is beyond the imagination of any of us. We don't have any clue of how terrifying and how awesome that day is going to be. But God has said to us, it's coming. So Noah believed God when he said there would be a flood. Do you believe the gospel message that there will be a day of judgment? Secondly, Noah was moved with godly fear. Noah feared God and it moved him. Which is to say that it it caused him to take obedient action. He obeyed because of this fear. God said, build an ark, and Noah built an ark. And in the same way, God has purposefully described the terrors of his judgment. He's purposefully described his wrath upon sinners, and the punishments of hell, and the terrors of hell, and the weeping, and the gnashing of teeth, and the darkness, and the fear, and the loneliness He's described all these things to us in the Bible. Why? Because he takes some sick pleasure in scaring people. No. He has, he's warned us of these things so that we may be moved with godly fear to obedient action. God told Noah to build an ark. What has he told us to do? God said, if you build an ark, you'll be saved. How has he told us that we are to be saved? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's, it's a bit like that strange instruction that God gave Moses in the wilderness. The children of Israel had been complaining again. God sent serpents among them. They were biting the people. And then they cried out to God for help. And you would think that God would give, uh, you know, an instruction That sort of made sense. You'd think he would say, well, you see that plant over there, that sort of desert shrub. Grind up the leaves, make a poultice, a mooty, and go and rub it on the snake bites, and then you'll be healed. But no, that's not what God did. He gave the most strange instruction. He said, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to lift it up on a pole. It's a picture of Jesus, by the way. Jesus lifted up. And all who look to him will be saved. And he says, Moses, anybody who's been bitten by a snake, I want them to look at that snake. And when they look at it, they'll be healed. My friends, it's not up to you and me to question 
the way in which God has designed for us to be saved. It's not for you to say, well, God, I reject your way of salvation and I'm going to go my own way. I think if I live a good enough life, I should be allowed into heaven. No, my friend, it doesn't work that way. God has told you how you are to be saved. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who was given for you. And you will be saved. You'll be saved by faith. Simply by looking and believing. You'll be saved. The Bible says. So do you have simple childlike faith in the message of the gospel? Fourth, Noah's faith can be seen in his actions. He was moved with godly fear, but that's not the whole story. If you go read that verse, it was actually by faith that he did these things. You see, faith and fear were working together. And you saw the fruit of his faith in how he lived his life. Many people call themselves Christians these days. Many people. Or they say, I believe in God. My friend, if you have been born again, your life will demonstrate it. The way you live your life will change. You won't practice bad business. You won't cheat on your clients and cheat on your suppliers. You won't cheat the tax man. You won't be unfaithful in marriage, persistently so. You won't live in persistent sin if you have been born of God. It is impossible. Go and read the book of 1 John. So that was the fourth point. Noah's faith can be seen in his actions. Can your faith be seen in how you live? Can it? When people look at your life, do they know there's a difference? If there's no difference, my friend, there's a strong chance that you don't know the Lord. Fifthly, lastly, Noah's faith condemned the world. Slightly more obscure point. But the Bible teaches here that God uses the faith and obedience of the righteous to magnify the unbelief and the unrighteous, unrighteousness of the unrighteous. He magnifies the wickedness of the wicked by establishing a people of his own. It's a very deep thought that, but it helps us understand some of Paul's very difficult statements in Romans about how he prepares certain vessels. God magnifies his righteousness by establishing a people who are righteous so that those who reject Christ are without excuse. And so now, what do you say, sinner? Will you come to Jesus today? Perhaps there are those of you who, like in the days of Noah, where people were carrying on eating and drinking and giving no thought to the state of their souls until the flood came and took them all away. Perhaps you've never really given it much thought. Perhaps you've never really been confronted with the demand, the summons of the gospel. Repent and believe. Will you come to Jesus? Perhaps you say to me, Stephen, you don't know what I've done. And you're right, my friend, I don't know what you've done. But I know that God knew 2,000 years ago 
And he took all that you'd done and all that I've done and he laid it on his son. And he crushed his son. He beat his son. Killed his son. And I'm here to tell you, my friend, that is enough for you. It's enough. You don't need any more. I don't care what you've done. The blood of Jesus Christ is strong enough for you. It's strong enough to wash you clean. My friend, will you come to Jesus today? Not tomorrow. You don't know if there'll be a tomorrow. Don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. My dear fellow sinner, will you come to Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We worship you, God, that though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you came, oh God, you came and saved us. You came and redeemed us, Lord. We turned this world into a bloodbath, God, but you came and you shed innocent blood so that we could get a new heart, Lord, so that we could be changed. We could become sons and daughters of God himself. What a privilege, Lord. We worship you this morning for it. I pray for those here, God, who don't know you. Oh, God, would you let your, your regenerating power fall upon them, God. Open their eyes, oh, God, that they may see the glory of Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray you bless each one here, God, and increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.